You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on this fine day. It's not raining. It was raining last night, though. What a uh, scramble around in the cold, wet weather in Melbourne. Uh, Today on Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to uh, talk to one of my fellow uh, presenters, Judith uh, Peppard, presenters at 3CR, but she's been roving and she's been at the Harm Reduction International Conference held in Melbourne over the last few weeks and or a few weeks ago, and she's got a very interesting perspective on uh, what's happened uh, in the past, our past, uh, when Bali 9, you remember, when uh, young men were executed for drug smuggling in Indonesia. Now, she's spoken to some practitioners, Belinda Lewis and Peter Lewis, uh, independent academics who've been working in cultural anthropology and public health around the issues that uh, come up uh, about such stringent laws and uh, as related to uh, drugs. Uh, We're going to um, find out about uh, the housing crisis. Uh, I've got a couple of things going on here. We've got technical difficulties with our phones and there's a potential that we'll catch up with uh, Margaret Pretorius from uh, Wage Peace around the uh, demo at Queensland University that I was talking to you about last week over Boeing's involvement in militarisation and the normalisation of warfare through its work and funding of uh, aspects of Queensland University. This is uh, not a new phenomenon. Uh, All through the universities in Australia, we are laced with uh, blood money from uh, um, uh, multinational arms dealers. Uh, And uh, it gives a perspective of what's going on with the normalisation of war, no money in peace. Uh, If that doesn't come through because of our technical difficulties, we're going to talk to Deb uh, D. Natali, uh, Council for Homeless People, um, persons. Uh, they've made a submission to the Victorian Government budget, which is on Tuesday, the 23rd of May, if it's, if it's escaped your attention. We've got the federal budget coming up, of course, on Tuesday, the 9th of May. But uh, they've put in a submission, which, and in part of the interview is uh, really teasing out something that people don't often really understand, which is this interchangeability in the terminology around social housing. We've got it under our belt. We know that public housing isn't social housing. But what about this apparently innocuous term, 
affordable housing. It's not just um, a term where you use it to say uh, we're going to have a roof over our head but you, you're going to have enough money to pay for it. It's actually got a very specific meaning and uh, that's what one of the things we were talking about. Um, so, you know, interchangeable, all very interesting. Um, this is the week that was and we're going to finish off with Kelly Whitworth and Mike Collins. Yes, you did hear them yesterday on Friday Breakfast. They've got a um, very important uh, piece of work coming out. It's going to be launched on um, next week, uh, it's uh, Housing Activism and Local Government, the Bendigo Street Occupation, a case study. Uh, keep keep listening uh, and uh, you will be informed. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the Voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And just to remind you that, yes, May the 1st, that's Monday at 5.30, that rally is happening. And there's going to be music, there's going to be celebration, and there's going to be a focus on uh, uh, how May Day isn't just something for remembering, it's also for future fights and perspective uh, and uh, solidarity building. Uh, but uh, the May Day Committee... Uh, offer, uh, usually holds its celebration in March for May Day uh, at the uh, on the Sunday after May the 1st and this year it's uh, May the 7th. Uh, they're saying come down to outside the Trades Hall. Uh, one o'clock there'll be speeches. March starts at two. Uh, and I think there's going to be some activities for uh, kids and there will be the MUA's legendary sausage sizzle. So uh, turn up or be square. And uh, in the studio, I've actually got a live guest, which is very exciting at this time of morning. Get a Judith Peppard. How are you? <laughs> Thanks, Annie. And it is very exciting and, and to be here too. But also, I think it's amazing that you come in on Saturday mornings oh, and, and on, provide. Uh, yeah. <laughs> more cheer, more, more accolades. <laughs> yeah, let's have them. Well, Bring it, them on. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like that uh, thing where they say, oh, someone's mm. a hero because they're doing their job. <laughs> 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 well, look, I mean, th- thank you for inviting me and also for the introduction. And yes, I was at the 27th uh, Harm Reduction International Conference, yeah, which was held in Melbourne uh, this month. I think it was the 16th and 19th uh, around that time, mid-month. And uh, look, uh, just to frame the next um, conversation, I just wanted to say a bit about some of the things discussed uh, at the conference. 
So, um, first of all, you know, I'm sure you remember Helen Clark, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, she's now the chair. I mean, she's done a lot of work in the UN uh, since then, but she's currently the chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy. Ah, yeah, cool. And she opened the conference with a very powerful um, call to decriminalize and regulate all drugs. Yeah. So that kind of set the perspective for the conference. And and she pointed out that... um, you know, first of all, and I think we all know this, drug prohibition has been a costly failure, and that doesn't even get to, you know, that's, that's the well, cost. Well, it's a costly failure for uh, society and people within it. Yes. But it's obviously got a purpose and a framework for finance and power brokers. <laughs> Indeed, yes. And uh, in terms of the failure part, uh, she pointed out that there is some... Um, the, uh, and first of all, you know the idea is we're going to have a drug-free world, which is a nonsense. Let's let's face it. No, no, humans are quite attracted to drugs. <laughs> yeah, and and we go back to tradition. I mean, in the conference, it was interesting because there's quite a few presentations about traditional use. You know, traditional cultures, First Nations peoples' use of various drugs, and uh, in some cases, also regulated. Yeah, and also interesting, like everything. On one side, you've got the deserving drugs. On the other side, you've got the undeserving drugs. Yes, in fact, one of the presenters said there's an apartheid. A presenter from South Africa. <laughs> there's an apartheid around drugs. So, you know, you and I can go down to the pub. But if you and I decide to have a drug that's illegal, then, you know, we're treated incredibly differently. So, yes, so absolutely that's the case. And she said, so it was it was set up, you know, to stop all drug use, which was a nonsense to start with. And But illicit drug use is growing globally. So so that didn't work. Well, that, uh, it, well considering that uh, people are extremely anxious and extremely poor. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And, um, and, and... Uh, you know, and, and the illicit drug production is increasing um, to meet, obviously, to meet well, the it need. Is, it is an industry. It is an industry. And, um, but I think, and, and closer to home and what we're speaking about today, punitive drug laws are a major driver of incarceration. She, she said an estimated 2.2 million worldwide in prison for drug offenses. Say that again. What's that? Say that number. I'll again. say that again. <laughs> she and it is an estimate, but two point. But I mean, they'd be, they've done the research and they're in a position to know. So I expect it's pretty close. Two point two million people mm. worldwide in prison for drug offenses, and twenty two percent of those drug of those for drug possession for personal use. Oh, that's awful. So, so this was, you know, this kind of set the framework. And, and of course, as we know, uh, and it's really brought home today for us that in, in some countries, people are put to death for drug offenses. And we heard two very moving presentations from people from Singapore and from Indonesia about the death penalty. And these were from people who are working to end it in both of those countries. And, uh, of course, Australia has been affected, too. Not, you know, we've, had <clears throat> we've set up a medically supervised injecting centre to prevent overdose deaths, for example. And, mm. uh, you know, and there's been increases. Uh, uh, I mean, there's been not because of the... Uh, yeah, it was a response to the spike yes. in deaths in yes. o- by overdose. 
That's right. And, and the, the valuations have proven positive. So this is good news. And, and also we need to look more at that and, and, prep, and another one, I think. Yeah. So, so, you know, whether you're in Singapore, Indonesia or here in Australia, the fact that these drugs are illegal um, call, contributes to um, drug related to death. But anyway, today, and I just want listeners to know because this, this is a, a sad story. Today is the anniversary of the day that Andrew Chan and Muran Sukumaran were executed in Indonesia. It was on April 29th, 2015, and uh, for uh, trafficking in drugs. And the term traffic I put in quotes because what does that mean? And often it's, it's small, you know, people who, are, aren't, well, who, aren't, uh, who have, sorry, aren't wealthy, they're often uh, not well-educated. Um, so in some cases in Singapore, it was reported some were even illiterate and didn't even know what they're getting into. But anyway, just we're, today is a sad day because because of the death of two people who we all knew about through the media, and there were huge protests uh, against these executions here in Australia and Indonesia. People worked to prevent it, and uh, so there was an outcry, but the executions went ahead. So Andrew Chan and Muran Sukumaran were arrested in Bali in 2005 for recruiting seven people to smuggle heroin from Indonesia into Australia. And the group became known as the Bali Nine. Of course, in the press, seven received prison sentences. Um, but Andrew and Muran were seen as ringleaders, were depicted in that way. And... Um, yeah, we're, we're sentenced to death. So last week I spoke with Belinda Lewis and Jeff Lewis, um, independent academics working in cultural studies, anthropology, public health, and they were working in Indonesia. They've done a lot of research in Indonesia, and they were working there at the time and, uh, and contributed, as many people did, to trying to, to have the death penalty not applied. So uh, they were deeply distressed when they heard the news of the executions. Here's Belinda Lewis. We were in Australia, but we were very well aware of the situation. And that next morning was a very quiet, sombre, and attached to quite a lot of sorrow. We knew it was coming because they'd been moved to the island. And we knew how the execution was going to take place. So it was all there fixed in our minds and imaginaries. So when we got the news, which was the next morning for us, we, no one knew it was going to actually happen that night. At the time, uh, it's even more emotionally disturbing and, and distressing. Execute them by firing squad. They don't know which, one have, which ones have live ammunition and which ones don't. So there's a whole group of them. They don't know who does the actual killing. That's to protect the emotions of the execution squad. They know they were getting a lot of international condemnation for it, not just from Australia, but from around the world. And they were keeping it as secretive as possible. So we had an approximate sense of when it all might take place. But for that reason, it was very much done in secret. How did you become involved in the campaign to prevent the execution? We'd been working and going into the prison since around about 2002. Did a 10-year immersion study of the impacts of the bombings on local communities and people in Bali and Indonesia. And we were concerned about the welfare and conditions that prisoners during the crisis that followed. We'd been going in 
particularly speaking to Australian prisoners and, and performing some support roles with Chappelle Forby and then not long after uh, the Bali Nine were uh, apprehended and, and brought in altogether. We began a support relationship, bringing necessities, speaking with family members, speaking with any of the prisoners who felt they wanted that companionship and support. I think it's fair to say we pretty early on we crossed the line between being pure researchers to being supporters. We went in there to do research basically on Indonesia's social systems and support networks and health systems. And our first interest was actually looking at the way sex workers were being treated and being marshaled through the prison system. And then, of course, a lot of the sex workers were associated with some sort of petty drug taking. It wasn't a big deal, but it all blew up with the arrest of some of the internationals, the Nigerians in particular, a couple of Brazilians and then the Australians. So we were there when Bali Nine were brought into the prison. We were already doing some work. And because they were Australian, we felt that level of affinity and we could speak their language comfortably. We saw exactly what it all meant. We've got experience of the prison system in Australia as well. But we understand who it is that gets incarcerated, who it is that gets convicted. We understand very clearly. So we were concerned and then we became it became a personal thing for us because we became friendly with quite a few of the and their families. Some of our work was just in that day-to-day conversation in passing. Some of it was behind the scenes doing formal academic writing about yeah. the death penalty. A lot of it was liaising with various media in Bali with quite high-profile people in Indonesia, the governor of Pastika at the time and big media people. And, so. and wherever we had an opportunity to bring up this issue, we did. Well, Pastika is actually a really interesting character in this story. The governor. Yeah, he was originally a senior police officer and he was actually on the narcotics board before he became governor of Bali. And he was one of the few people who did have a more compassionate view of drug traffic and drug taking, was one of the rare voices in Indonesia who was looking at it as much as a health issue as it was a criminal issue. So there are these voices in Indonesia who are unsupportive. Amnesty Indonesia have been very big on opposing the death penalty. But there are other people too, and it's been a review of the criminal code and just recently placed a new kind of condition on the death penalty. The new approach will be that a probationary death penalty where you'll be given the death penalty but it won't be uh, enforced for 10 years. So you'll have 10 years if the judge decides to do this, give you this option. Amnesty Indonesia supported to a degree because it's better than what it is at the current stage, but they're all still concerned that it's left to the discretion of the judges in the case. And some recognition, I think, that there is that decision-making rests on individuals and it's not enshrined firmly. And that's exactly what happened to both Andrew and Mayu. Given the death sentence and made their appeals and basically were refused by quite lower level members of the judiciary in a local district court, people are at the mercy of whoever is in position of power at the time and that's really not enough. Andrew and Mayu were incredibly 
well regarded by the majority of people within the prison and the prison governor had repeatedly made many, many calls of support on their behalf, which had no weight at all. So the description of what Amnesty Indonesia is talking about now is no matter how reformed or how positive prisoners are over that 10-year probationary period, it's still very, very, very up in the air as to whether or not this would be an effective tool for saving people's lives. Belinda Lewis. And as Belinda has pointed out, there are people in Indonesia advocating against the death penalty and seeking drug law reform. But change is difficult, and keeping drugs criminalised is big business. And it's a huge economy for which Australia and Australian population provides a huge market, a huge demand for these drugs. It's really ironic, you know, because drug taking is rife in Indonesia. It's got a deep history. I mean, everything from, you know, the beetle nut chewing to in the kampongs at night, any time you go any of the kampongs, any of the neighbourhoods in Indonesia, you'll find them with this pot of stuff that they're stirring up and all imbibing. It's been like that since, you know, since I can remember. I've been going there for 50 years almost. And there's always been this kind of social gatherings around some form of drug taking, which may include alcohol or various What's happened in Indonesia is that the international tourist trade has brought a new kind of drug schemata into Indonesia, and that's when we've got the um, party drugs, and which are much more rife and more replete than than heroin. But then we've also got heroin. The other ironical thing is that Bali and I were actually trying to get drugs out of Indonesia, not bring them in. So. Um, you could decriminalise drug taking as you should decriminalise drug taking probably everywhere, uh, not just in Indonesia. Everybody working in this field agrees that when it's prohibited, it's expensive. And when there's a lot of profit to be made, there is a lot of crime involvement. Can I add a footnote, though, about the death of here? Because um, when Amrozi was executed, he was the ringleader of the Bali bombings, when Amrozi was executed we were put under us on the spot but we were asked well do you oppose the death penalty for someone like Amrozi why aren't you advocating on his behalf well we actually were we actually did write to say no the death penalty even for someone like Amrozi should not be prosecuted you should not use the death penalty in these circumstances and the reason being is that the state should be better than that that's my view that the state should be better than having to resort to something like the death penalty in order to manage the criminal process, in order to manage criminality. The people whom we got to know, and most of them were the Australians, but others as well. We got to know some of the Nigerians and some of the other people, um, Indonesians. The savagery of the place leaves people intellectually, mentally destitute. It's just so brutal, so cruel, so austere. You'll have... Well, women, men crushed into this small space. They sleep on the floor, toilet in the corner. Sanitation's awful, the health's awful. Part of our support process in the prisons was actually bringing food in. We just bring food in because they their food rations were so poor. And unhygiene, a lot of sickness. Accompanying that is a sense of responsibility to these families. I couldn't call it necessarily ongoing reparation, but particularly around the Bali Nine, because it was a bungle. 
it was a bungled attempt to smuggle the drugs, but it was a bungle because the AFP were tipped off several, many weeks prior to this crime even being commenced. They were notified and those Australians weren't protected in any shape or form, in fact. Those families need a huge amount of support right now. The flow-on effects have been horrific, all of them, they're all of their contacts and no responsibility really has been taken for that. Yeah, and look, the other thing about being incarcerated in the prison system, whether it's in Australia or in Indonesia, is that they're really brutal places. They are violent places. So there's a lot of actual crime within the prison system itself, a lot of hierarchy and violence, and that has um, connections to the outside world, criminal gangs in Indonesia, so there's a whole economy within the prison system itself. There's also drug taking is right in the prison system, as it is here. But it's even worse over there. And drugs are become a commodity, become the money, become the currency in the prison system. And sometimes there's a choice between the drug that you need and that you're dependent on and food or access to medicines. What does this experience tell you about the international prohibition regime? I think it just fortifies what we already know and what we've known for a very, very long time. It simply tells us that treating drug taking as a criminal process, criminal activity, is misguided. It's totally misguided. And there are plenty of people on all sides of politics in Indonesia. They recognise that the war on drugs, their war on drugs, isn't working. They know it's not working. Uh, Unfortunately, they are subject to... uh, process of election in which crime and criminality becomes a a useful popularity tool. Jokowi, he was being pressured by his own party to to show what a tough guy he was. It shows you that the international system on drug prohibition, treating drugs as, as a criminal issue rather than a health issue or a social issue, is just completely misguided, completely misguided. Yeah, back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Judith Peppard in the studio. That was a fairly sobering uh, report, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, I think if if people who were hearing, particularly who have been connected around those executions, are are, are struggling and finding and they're distressed, um, it's important to to speak with someone. And you can call Lifeline on one three one one. One four, but I thought you know in his final statement there, Jeff Lewis, talking about the death penalty and the futility of the war on drugs, and uh, I think that that you know it starts at the top from the UN and which again influenced by the US around that, and um, you know in 1961 the single convention was introduced, which you know transmitted this prohibition policy to the UN to the whole world. And, and of course, Belinda Lewis then um, also talked about how making drugs illegal raises the price and opens the way for black market, for crime, criminal. And of course, that's what happened in America during Prohibition in the 20s, you know. Uh, and then they take a failed policy and let's, um, you know, apply it to cannabis, let's apply it to other drugs, heroin, for example, and, uh, and then bring it to the world. And we have the kind of distress, you know, uh, and what's been, what we've seen happen. 
So I want to thank Belinda Lewis and Jeff Lewis for their time because, as you would have heard at the beginning, I, I think they both were you know very it was an emotional time for them too and quite distressed when they heard about those executions and 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 also involved in the process they did they were clear with me that you know they weren't the only people oh, yeah. many many people and even the U, um Australia I think re, um huge protests coming from the top from the federal government uh, you were saying that uh, this is not uh, an abandoned policy. Uh, when you came in, you were saying that uh, you were quite amazed at uh, a recent execution in Singapore. Yes. Well, last week, Wednesday, I think it was, we heard that another person has been executed in Singapore. And um, despite pleas for clemency from his family and protests from activists and that the prosecutor's evidence was weak. They were arguing the, the evidence was weak for this particular execution. And this was reported on the ABC as well. And I found it interesting that uh, one of the people they quoted was Kristen Hahn, who presented at the Harm Reduction Conference about the death penalty. And she's part of the Transformative Justice Collective in Singapore. And she's she's a journalist, and she's wanting to get the message out that this is not a good way to deal with drug policy. It's time to ban it. And I think one of the things that Belinda Lewis said was the fact that Australia is a huge market. And while these drugs are illegal, we provide a market. Well, it's very sobering that uh, that fellow, uh, was it a fellow? That was executed? Yeah, it was a man. I'm sorry, I didn't uh, write his so, name down. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, but he was convicted of, what was it? What? A kilogram of cannabis. So he was executed for yeah, bringing a... a and again, I, I've only really caught up with the story, so more to, to find out there, and I'm sure more will emerge. But I think if you have over 500 grams in Singapore, um, you are could be subject to the death penalty. Thanks for coming in and talking to us this morning, Judith. It's been a pleasure, Annie. Thanks for inviting me. I never thought we'd be right back here Living in the darkness, living with the fear Forgotten where we came from, drifting in the mist With the main mast broken and the heads all ripped they run with hares, they hunt with the hounds They trample all over this sacred ground I listen for the outrage, the shock or a howl But I hardly hear a murmur or a sound In times like these Like these The captain and the crew, they're tearing up the chart The sextant is broken and we can't see the stars Southern skyline, there are storm clouds dark. We're running out of courage and we're running out of heart. I can't believe that we're back on our knees. Anybody out there, anybody please, just need something, something to believe. Someone to write me songs. Times like these, times like these. Loudly denying what the rest of us can see There goes the atmosphere, there go the seas There goes all we fought for, dying by degrees There go your rights, there go your wages
pages that echoes everything you thought was saving. Fossil fools who don't know what they're doing, driving the song into the ruin of times like these. Times like these. Once upon a time in a land like this, a fair go for all was what we taught our kids. But now it's make me a star on reality TV. And spare me the awful truth about times like Every year on May Day, 3CR joins communities from around the globe in celebrating the achievements of the labour movement. Showing solidarity with the struggle for workplace rights and fair working conditions for everyone. Stolen wages campaign, Black Power Union. The role of the bicycle in workers' revolutions. Working women. The transition of workers in the coal and gas industry. Climate action and union solidarity the history of May Day and much more. So tune in on Monday, May the 1st. As we celebrate the strong and proud history of the struggle for workplace justice everywhere. That's right, here on 3CR Digital, 8.55am. Also on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash May Day. Happy May Day. Happy May Day. Get around it. Happy May Day. Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1pm, Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1pm, Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. 
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And as I said, I'll first up give you Deb uh, Di Natale. Deb is actually from the uh, uh, Council for... uh, She's a social justice advocate advocate, and she's the head of the Council to Homeless Persons. Uh, And uh, they've... uh, uh, put in a submission to the Victorian government around um, homelessness and a plan for how they can turn, the government can turn uh, thousands of homes that were designated as affordable houses into social um, uh, accommodation. Uh, And here's, here's Deb. Now, just for my listeners, do you want to give us an idea of who you are, the Council to Homeless Persons? I just found that quite fascinating. Can you tell us, Deb, what yeah, sure. what you do? Sure. So we're the peak body and we represent homelessness across Australia. So what we do is we try and advocate to the government on behalf of all organisations that are providing services to people experiencing homelessness to find the solution in terms of ensuring that we get more people housed. And you're actually quite positive, aren't you? I mean, uh, you've recently put in a submission to the Victorian government leading into its budget and you put you say quite categorically that it's possible to actually uh, remove homelessness as a blight on our society. You're absolutely right, Annie, and a lot of people will say to me, oh, how do you work in an area like homelessness? It must be really depressing. Well, actually, it's one of those social issues that is really one where we have a roadmap and we've got a solution. So we know we can end it, and I think when you know that you can end a social problem that impacts on people who are very vulnerable across our state, we feel very optimistic, so our role is just to continue to articulate that roadmap to our state government ministers and leaders. And uh, in fact, your organisation does an analysis of why, uh, why the you know the reasons for why there is um, such a uh, problem at the moment. It does, and what we know is that one of the single biggest things that we want the government to continue in this state budget is to not just continue to fund but increase the funding on the Homelessness to a Home project. That project has managed to keep thousands of Victorians in a house and I think what um, there's this big misconception that the solution to people who have been sleeping rough is just to provide a home You need to be able to provide the home, but the social supports are just as critical so that if someone is experiencing some challenges around alcohol and other drugs, mental health, any of those long-standing challenges need to be addressed with the right social supports. And we know that organisations across this state that have implemented the homelessness to a home principles have managed to achieve a 90% sustainment rate in their tenancy. So that means 90% of those people who were sleeping rough, who have been housed and have got the right ongoing support, have managed to stay in that home. 
And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, anything that has got that evidence behind it should continue to be funded. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So what it really means is that this whole area is quite complex because humans are complex. And it would be argued, it could be argued that uh, in actual fact, uh, focusing on uh, houses as being uh, a roof over your head and security rather than an investment or a financial issue could be... uh, helpful in fact absolutely and that is what we are trying to say that in fact while you're spending the money here at the front end in this service you we know that you're saving money long term so people keep telling me it's a really tight fiscal budget we understand that but we're saying this is if you want to talk about it in economic terms this is going to save the government money in terms of health department because you haven't got ongoing health issues that people have when they are experiencing homelessness and also in the justice system because of the correlation between that cyclical unfortunate um, system that operates that is a direct correlation between um, homelessness and uh, leading into some type of uh, justice system. So we say spend the money at the front end and you're going to get really long-term benefits. We also know that the Homelessness to a Home program is really good at getting people back into employment. So it's a win-win for everybody. Um, let's take the gloves off. I, I'm responding to a, a, a release that you put out, the Council to Homeless Persons put out, um, challenging the Victorian government to actually... Uh, uh, cover the shortfall between what's called affordable housing and social housing. Um, this is fascinating to me because people think that these are interchangeable words. Uh, in fact, they think that public housing is the same as social housing, but of course that's not the case. But could you explain to my listeners the difference between what's called affordable housing and social housing and what your plan that you put forward to the government and the budget Sure. So a lot of, you're absolutely right, a lot of people use the term affordable and social housing as one and the same, but they are in fact really distinct. So a really simple way of explaining it is that affordable housing is where a renter pays 80% of the market rate. So if the market rent for a property was, for example, $450 a week, an affordable rent charge would be $360 per week. Social housing, on the other hand, is where a renter pays 25 to 30% of their income. So the rents aren't tied to market rates but to income. So that would mean a single person on JobSeeker, their rent would be around $125 per week. Okay. Or, yeah, so that's, that, that's the way of looking at it. But one is looking at a market rent and saying you pay 80% of that. The other, the other one is saying we're not looking at the market rent, we're looking at your income. And just, just to jump in here, the federal government has committed to build 20,500 affordable housing properties. That's affordable housing properties over the next four years. And based on population, Victoria's share of these dwellings is 7,000. Okay. So we're called, we're talking about affordable housing, not social housing. Exactly. And, What we are asking for and what 
anyone who works in homelessness is asking for is a greater proportion of social housing. And when people say, well, why is Victoria asking for this? We've got the lowest proportion of all households living in social housing. So, for example, in 2021, the proportion in Victoria was 2.9% compared to a national average of 4.2%. So when you benchmark us across any other jurisdiction, we are the lowest proportion. So we would say, have a look at the other jurisdictions and what they're doing, and let's make sure that we get this right and we address people who are experiencing so much disadvantage across this state. Um, and it's worth knowing that Victoria's got more than 67,000 households at the moment registered and waiting for social housing, and 36,000 people are deemed a priority. So we're talking about real needs, and we need to see some action and leadership by the state government in this budget. In fact, what you've done is actually costed it and uh, you're saying that the Victorian government should put $11,400 into each of those uh, households' rent payments in order to change those 7,000 houses into social housing rather than affordable housing. That's the plan, exactly. isn't it? Yep, that's absolutely right. Which is fascinating. I mean, in a way, it seems to me it's almost like why is, is this not propping up the lazy capitalist model of uh, <laughs> using housing uh, as a weapon against uh, the majority of the population? Absolutely right, yep. And we've got a solution, we can fix it, and for people who aren't driven or motivated by good social outcomes, the economic stacks up as well. Um, there was a fascinating thing in your. I'll just uh, I'll rustle my bits of paper because I was reading your um, uh, thing that uh, the, the, the uh, submission that you made, and there's this uh, absolutely fascinating breakdown of because you're looking at youth homelessness, um, and I'll just read it. Invest in establishing a pool of 5,000 new social housing properties for young people um, because um, and you do a breakdown of uh, how much people who rent to uh, uh, young people and the reason for why young people are not preferred tenants is because they just don't uh, receive enough uh, payments to be able to be um, uh, financially useful to the people who are putting, who are renting out these properties. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it took me right. a long and time to get that out, but no, Annie, you're spot on. It means that young people who have got less income supports than other people will be seen as not having the same amount of money to be able to meet their rental payments. And we want to support our young people to be able to thrive. And we know that in order to do that, they need to have really good housing options and they need to have good housing support. And, in fact, we just released our parity 
um, magazine for those that are interested and that was a couple of days ago and that is all around our young people and their experience of homelessness and we say you need targeted social housing for young people uh, and you're right, it's 5,000 new homes and I mean just across the board for your listeners, sometimes um, it, it's good to do a breakdown that if you're on JobSeeker and your rent assistance maxes out, that requires a person on JobSeeker to live on $66 per week. Now, I don't think there's anybody listening across the state that would say it's possible to live on $66 a week. So we've set up a system where people who are experiencing poverty are just ending up squeezed out. Everybody knows the cost of living pressures. So the time to act is now. Um, can you just, before I let you go, because this is such a complicated area, although in a way it's simple, people need roofs over their heads um, and in appropriate places, uh, where does the big housing build fit into all this? I mean, it's nice. It's a nice slogan, big housing build, uh, and there is building uh, billions of dollars attached to it. But how does that fit in? Uh, with answering the issues that we've been discussing? So what we are learning about the big housing build is that uh, firstly we want to congratulate the government. I think that is an incredible commitment from the government and some leadership that says we actually do need to do something around housing and we need to get more of those constructed. What we do is we say, in terms of that big housing build, we want a proportion of that to be allocated and targeted for young people. And that, in my understanding, is that that has already been committed, a portion of the big housing build. What we obviously are trying to do as well is to ensure that we're doing everything we can to support the government to ensure that we get those buildings constructed in an efficient way and as quickly as possible. Okay, so you see it as positive? I do see it as positive, absolutely. Yeah. Have you had any uh, response from the government in relation to your uh, suggestion? We haven't. Uh, We don't know. We've had some... Thank you very much for your budget submission. Um, We have looked at it and... We won't know now until the budget is delivered the exact sums that are going to fall in terms of the housing ask. Uh, So, no, I certainly haven't had any heads up that I've got a kick against any of those asks. But when you're in advocacy, you're always hopeful. (laughs) Well, that's right. (laughs) Take your hopeful pill each morning. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for talking to me, Deb. Worried about the climate crisis but not sure how to help? Whether you want to make your voice heard in our democracy, help out with local sustainability projects or hit the streets to protest for change, Climate Carnival has something for everyone. This two-day festival is your chance to meet a range of local climate and environment groups, get the facts on climate crisis and find out what you can do to make a difference. There'll be talks and workshops, music, comedy, kids' activities and more. 
So come to Mycelium Studios in Brunswick East on Saturday 6th and Sunday 7th of May. Make some new friends and find your place in the movement. For more information, look up Climate Carnival on Facebook. Climate Carnival is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we were listening to Deb D. Natali, Council of Homeless People, about their submission to the Victorian Government uh, uh, to turn um, affordable housing into social housing. It uh, just needs some money. And uh, on the line we've got Marg Pretorius. How, how are you? Good, Annie. Hi. It's great to get you finally. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a, a big uh, d- uh, and long slug, but it's always good to talk to you because uh, you do magnificent work from uh, Wage Peace, and uh, you ma- you took it straight to the Queensland University Senate a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell my listeners what happened? Yeah, well, we've been watching Boeing for quite a while. Um, Boeing has an institute at the. Queensland University, and we think it's normalising militarism and pushing militarism uh, on students, and they're building hypersonic missiles there, uh, researching. Uh, we think there's something between 30 and 130 staff. It's very hard to get information. Goodness me, that's a big investment. Um, it's a, a big investment in Boeing laundering their reputation. That's right. <clears throat> a raising ethics. Laundering reputations, normalising militarism—they're the slogans. Um, but so what we decided we we had done a few protests there, uh, a protest where we had pasted their windows with what they're really making, which is not civilian aircraft, of course, but it's attack helicopters, super jets, uh, missiles, including nuclear missiles, um, and. You know, mainly they build aircraft for war crimes. That's where they make their big bucks, maybe $30 billion a year on uh, military products. That's their um, uh, income. But in, in Australia, they've got a special deal with Queens, the Queensland government. And so we decided this time, it, you know, it was Senate meeting month, and we thought instead of putting it off for another month, we'd just walk straight in and give a presentation to the Senate that's what one does with the Senate, isn't it, is to go in and make a presentation. So we walked in about 10 of us, and there's maybe 20 of them. Uh, they were discussing something else. We're not quite sure what, because we were a little rude. And we just started our presentation, which included a speech from the lovely Christine Van Westaway on what is going on in this university. Why have they switched um, to uh, militarism, basically? They're moving after years and years being dominated by the fossil fuel industry, by before that being dominated by the construction industry, and now moving into the weapons industry. And we're concerned. We're concerned not just about universities, but about schools as well, um, and the domination of the weapons companies in schools, or actually the, uh, the parasitic nature of them moving in to launder their reputation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you go in there and it's sort of like you're being impolite, but there's nothing more impolite than um, murdering people uh, in Yemen, Palestine and West Palpio. No, that's right. And, um, of course, we do have a special uh, special friendships with people in West Papua, and they have seen these Boeing uh, helicopters and received the strafing on their villages. Um, and 
we know that Australia has just bought 129 of those, uh, oh no, 29 of those Apache helicopters, attack helicopters, and that Indonesia has also bought a lot of those attack helicopters, and that Boeing, we think, is agitating for war. So Boeing, uh, Boeing's business is militarism, so Boeing needs to push militarism in the society in order for the society to justify spending so much money on weapons. And of course, we're spending, we think, 20 to 30 billion on weapons right now every year. Um, and that probably includes uh, the 10 billion that's slated for the map, the, the, um, Submarines, you know, the submarines yeah. is not such a big number because it's over 30 years and it's something like 10 billion a year over 30 years, which is not a big number in the weapons industry. Uh, in the weapons industry, they're already spending 20 to 30 billion uh, extra on weapons and we've seen the amount of money spent on the defence on defence, on so-called defence or attack, go from 30 to 50 billion with that amount in the last three or four years. So... It really is, that's really the number, 20 to 30 billion that they're already spending on a huge array of weapons. And Boeing, um, of course, I, we think Boeing probably gets 10 to 15% of that 20 to 30 billion a year from the Australian um, pocket, which of course is sovereign sovereign money from the sovereign land and the sovereign owners of this land. I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm here currently on Gadigal country, actually. And um, I... The, what we see is sort of a transfer right now of money that's coming through the fossil fuel industry. It's the last money to come from the fossil fuel industry. Um, and it's a big, a lot of money, and it comes in through the government, and then the governments push it out through the weapons industry. Um, and we think it's sort of almost uh, designed to prop up the U.S. as the U.S. empire dies. Is this uh, money that all the colonies are spending on U.S. weapons. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, as someone said at one of the rallies here, um, uh, AUKUS should be uh, really, you, uh, you are a sucker. Yes, that's right, we're a sucker. And um, we're also very interested in the role of the, of the uh, defence ministers, right? So Brendan Nelson, of course, works for Boeing. He's the head of Boeing International now, uh, Boeing International Defence. Um, working out of London. He's moved from Australia to London. Brendan Nelson was the Defence Minister. And like all the Defence Ministers we've had, they now play massive roles in uh, constructing and facilitating and enabling the weapons industry in Australia. They have they have really worked hard in their post-political life to make sure that the weapons industry have a good foothold over our resources. So we have Beasley first, who set it up, and Nelson then Smith, who's now the ambassador to the UK, um, and then Pine, who's set up a missile business, uh, the Australian Missile Corporation. Um, then we had Reynolds, who came out of Raytheon, um, but of course has now failed uh, in their work. They were undermined and by certain other forces. And then Miles, who's the current defence minister, who we wonder who he will work for when he leaves, but he's currently doing his enabling work. You know, it's a bit like if you think the agricultural minister's job is to sell wheat overseas. Well, the defence minister's job is to sell weapons. That's their main job. And you'll you'll see him pottering around the world, um, making weapons deals. They made weapons deals uh, in France, 
to try and get more uh, weapons and ammunition, particularly into Ukraine, uh, through a deal with France. Uh, so they're all trying to make a cut, um, but most of the money flows back to the US. The uh, uh, This work of, uh, uh, of targeting uh, places like Queensland University, because a university, uh, you know, taking funding, uh, using all this uh, money and uh uh, investing all this intellect into uh, the machinery of war uh, is normalising it to to the young and taking it to them is important work, isn't it? Yeah, well, we want people to know Boeing is a weapons company. That's our message at the moment. You know, we're a bit like Adani is a coal company or an energy company. You know, Boeing is a weapons company. We want people to know Boeing, 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 weapons, weapons, weapons. That's what they make. Their civilian business, it has been a big business, but it's not so good anymore. Um, but their main business now is in, in, in weapons. And they are in the universities to launder that reputation and to pick up the brightest minds. So the minds that at right at this moment we need in medical health sciences or climate science or um, ecological restoration, we need, you know, um, we need all those minds to, to, to think about how we're going to cooperate to create a just and peaceful world and a, a world that is restored to its, you know, to its natural order of creation, you know. We need, we need that sort of, those sort of minds right now. And they are stealing the best minds to build weapons. And this is such a waste. And the weapons themselves are so wasteful. And um, we see them there. There's one in each of the different uh, universities, the, the, the group of eight, you know, Elbit is in RMIT, uh, Lockheed Martin is in Melbourne Uni, Talas is in Sydney Uni, uh, BAU is in Adelaide Uni. You see them each with a special partnership in each of the unis, um, taking up space and, and, and trying to pick off the best minds um, from, from, the, from the university community. And we also see them in the schools because they have to start early. It turns out women particularly do not want to work for them um, if they just encounter them when they're 17. But if they encounter them when they're seven um, and they've been to a nice drone program and they've had fun, then they're more interested. They've, they've, they've been accustomed or the, the, the weapons companies are normalised in those young people's minds. Thanks for talking to us today, Margaret, and uh, more strength to your arm. Yeah, thank you so much. Let's go, OK. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when big supremo Anthony Albinguzi solemnly celebrated on a train killing in the Merchants of Death Best We Forget Day, telling us we want no more deaths and lives destroyed by trained killing, achieved through policies aimed at a peace, stability and prosperity in our region. But before I go on, for those who heard this segment last week, there were three possibilities. Either Annie thought the first half so brilliant it was worth hearing twice, odds out of 10 minus 100, or Annie thought it so nonsensical she'd see if our listener could make the slightest sense of it, odds plus 100, or the perils of technology struck and yeah, probably 10. Back to, uh, how do we achieve all that, Anthony? Peace, stability, prosperity. Uh, we are committed to spending trillions on making our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world's merchants of death, prosperous. 38 million a day on nuclear submarines alone. Peace-loving US of nuclear subs. 
what, what things that kill, things that train to kill, how, how will that achieve peace and stability? If I keep the US, I'm happy. As the wall-to-wall excitement, the coverage of Train Killer Day, True Blue Aussie's values, freedom, prosperity, we're assured, honed through mass slaughter after landing on the wrong beach in Turkey in a military disaster, which may microcosmically represent our values, coverage settles. We can now look forward to mass non-coverage of May Day. Unless some overseas May Day celebration turns violent as the sorry, the police keeping law and order get stuck into the marches, stuck into the celebration, and our media can point out how violent were those workers who so upset the poor coppers. Because class warfare is not real warfare, like the frontier wars, the resistance and slaughter of indigenous defenders is not real warfare, not real capitalist warfare. Although some might suggest class warfare is also capitalist warfare, exploiting exactly the same pool of cannon fodder. But thankfully, we know that is just plain wrong. Cannot be. Because the barons of the greatest little economic order of them all and their acolytes assure us there is no such thing as class in our classless society, that those who refer to class struggle or class differences at all are guilty of class envy. They're guilty of raising, you know, like class envy. One of the acolytes, Carey Business Class Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, would alert us. Ignoring, hard to believe a brilliant man like Pete would ignore anything, but ignoring the minor fact that acknowledging class envy acknowledges there is class of which to be envious. So because there is no class warfare, the class that knows there is no class knows there is no commemoration of class warfare to commemorate. So there is no need to give oxygen to the disruptive fallacies of class struggle perpetuated by lazy avaricious workers and evil unions. Well, some lazy avaricious workers. Thankfully, the esteemed practitioners of the greatest little economic order have convinced much more than some workers that the greatest little has their interests at heart, is there just for them. Which it kind of is, because it wouldn't be there without them. Amid all the celebration of non-class warfare, anniversaries of many a slaughter contributing to our values, the media, the mainstream media that is, couldn't squeeze in a mention of the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza tragedy which murdered and injured thousands of clothing workers in Bangladesh. Another slaughter proving the Kerry business class argument that there is no such thing as class difference or class struggle. Which explains why 10 years later no one has been charged or punished on the one hand or compensated on the other. See, left to their own devices or lack of, all treated equally in a classless society. Free enterprise. And as we glorify train killing, having for instance to delay turning on the footy until bounce the ball time to avoid the nauseating pre-game train killer crap, let's contemplate that left, right, left isn't just train killer marching, but reflects many a socialist politician, well, using left pretty loosely, who claim to be left when they seek election, march right as right once elected, hop along on their right foot, then rediscover their left bit, their very limited left bit, when they retire or get thrown out. Like Jenny making the poor poorer 
who we are told was on the left as she threw single parents, mostly mums and their kids, onto the poverty scrap heap, and now says they should be returned to where they were before she reduced them to poverty. See? Left, right, left. With, with, as we say, the proviso, very limited left. And what a nuisance for then big supremo Julia Gallinghard that people keep reminding us that Jenny and Julia sold out single mums on the very day Julia made her misogyny speech. Not that the government can afford to go all the way back, nor can it afford to lift dole bludgers out of poverty, as we have to find that 38 mil a day for 30 years for US of subs to protect the US of from evil China, plus all the trillions more on Merchants of Death merchandise announced this week to ensure peace, stability and prosperity. War is peace. Stability is war. Prosperity is the Merchants of Death so the poverty-stricken can feel peaceful, stable and prosperous, knowing their little spot in their favourite gutter will be safe. Well, until the authorities move them on. We also know the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, is also proving a strait on the defence budget, but here at least there is good news. Private equity investors are pouring money into the NDIS scheme, sensing an opportunity for outsized returns after profits in the sector rose more than 29% on average every year since 2018. Goody, goody. All that government spending is not going to waste on non-essentials like, well, say, people with disabilities. As one investor gloated, it is an industry that has got a lot of people's attention in terms of sheer spend from the government's $35 billion this year alone, and the market is evolving quickly. See? People with disabilities are an industry, a market, and with the magnificent benefits of the super-efficiency of the private sector, isn't it hard to believe costs are exploding? All that, what a silly, silly thought. There could be the odd saving if the government ran the scheme itself, bypassed the private sector altogether. But no, no, that would deprive us of the efficiencies of the market, like the efficiencies, the common sense in continuing to imprison and refuse to accept no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, while announcing a need to attract a workforce. Better to spend a fortune imprisoning and refusing, rejecting, and a fortune attracting. The sheer common sense of the greatest little economic order of them all. And a positive. While the government can't afford to afford the destitute, it can find $240 million to build a footy ground for the business elite to run the AFL. Almost a whole week of nuclear subs. I'm starting to think the caring business class party elements urging no voice for the Terranulius people are very, very slow in the brain department as what seems a most simple and clear statement is anything but to them, with, speaking of the misogynist speech, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses putting his bib into the issue this week, bemoaning, there's so much uncertainty, so much uncertainty, an extension of current supremo constable duffers, we need more, you know, like detail. And through his mental haze of uncertainty, Tiny also bemoaned that anyone opposed to it is placed under suspicion of closet racism. Suspicion of closet racism. Well, no, Tiny. Not all. But in certain cases, Tiny, it's not closet. It's there for all to see, overt, barefaced. 
I want to comment on Barry Humphreys, a whole page of lavish praise by Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head, telling us how Humphreys hated political correctness and had declared the one funeral he'd like to attend would be the Human Rights Commission. He listed the people Humphreys hated and set up, and hate to say it, listener, but it seems to take in us. All the more reason why the public purse should pay for his funeral. Exciting news leading up to the big excitement, the big event we're all so excited about, the coronation of our head of state. Madame Tussos now has a wax dummy of him and her. Truly beautiful. And I thought, wonder what result an IQ comparison between the wax and real versions would turn up. Can't wait to admire all that train killer paraphernalia the dole bludging family turns up in on these truly important occasions. Finally, we mentioned last week how Lord Rupert's media outlets highlighted another filthiest rich of Elon must make money publishing lies and disinformation, but not a word of Lord Rupert himself paying out the biggest defamation settlement ever for lies and disinformation, suggesting for a week or two at least he might just shut up. But no, this week the Whopping Sin reported one of the USA's biggest media companies, NBC Universal, announced its chief, Jeff Schell, has left his job after a complaint about his conduct. Then, the misconduct scandal is the latest to occur at the top of corporate America. They include the departure of bosses such as Steve Easterbrook, the Briton who headed McDonald's, and the founder and former boss of Uber, Steve Travis Kowadik. But Lord Rupert readers would still have no idea of his own record hush money payment. But of course there's a big difference. No one at Foxy or at Newsbury Limited has resigned. Lies and disinformation, business as usual. Oh, and I'm sure Lord Rupert would love to join in wishing all of us a happy May Day. Good morning. Stay locked to 3CR. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, another sizzling Kevin Healy analysis of the week. And in the studio, I have... More live guests. How extraordinary. It's turning into a nightmare, this morning program. <laughs> G'day, Kelly. How are you? I'm very well, Annie. Yes. So we've got Kelly Whitworth, and uh, you are a Melbourne Social Equity Institute Community Fellow. Yes. And your other community fellow from the same place, Michael Collins. Hello. How are you? Good morning, Annie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've both put together, collaborated, uh, put together Housing Activism and Local Government, the Bendigo Street Occupation, a case study. And uh, being having been part of uh, activist uh, events, uh, often a, a large event happens, and this was over eight months occupying the uh, Bendigo Street houses, uh, that were left over from uh, the houses that had been compulsorily uh, acquired but not uh, pulled down after the east-west link was thrown out. Um, the point of the question is often um, people don't actually go through the coals and you don't actually uh, look through it and try and an- analyse it. Tell us about your uh, journey towards this report. I reckon um, Mike's best place to answer that because it really was his idea, thankfully. Um, Yeah. 
Well, there's a, there's a lot of story to tell about what happened at Bendigo Street, um, but I work in local government, and I'm been very interested in the uh, the the potential kind of power of local government in terms of um, making change in relation to housing. And I saw what happened in Bendigo Street as something that I think needed to be both well-documented and understood. So maybe there are things that happen there if we have a good understanding of what happened even just in that framing just the relationship between local government and the activists that can inform um, you know better things in the future and inform and I especially wanted to I guess speak to local government and make out of it maybe make some tentative proposals about ways to do things better that can when there's mutual, um, agreement on between activists and local government on, on the goals you want to achieve, what local government can actively do to, to, to support the people on the ground who are putting their kind of lives on the line, as people did. Because uh, that yeah. was the point, wasn't it? Because the Yarra Council had actually been working on a... Uh, they were trying to get those houses uh, designated as social housing and for some unknown reason that didn't fall into the agenda of the Victorian government. Yes, um, there had been a announcement by the state government about six months before the occupation started that there was, uh, they were going to... But that's a lie. ...put them in. Um, well... The fact of it is that it never actually happened, and I guess we fast-forward past the occupation. Those houses in Bendigo Street were sold on the open market. Um, That's right. I mean, it, yeah. very very uh, insidious. In fact, there was a point where uh, actual research has shown that there were about three houses, and they they did a whole range of things that uh, were to malign the uh, people who were uh holding the houses, the activists, that was your experience, in, in order to change the narrative? Ah, oh, yeah, from the get-go, Annie. Initially, um, they ignored us and because um, we were revealing some pretty um, toxic stuff, you know, that the charity that had been given a portion of the houses to house homeless people, when we rocked up there, we found they were housing their own employees um, you know, the media and the government wouldn't have a wouldn't touch that, you know, with a 10-foot pole. Then they said that we were preventing um, – this is at the time when the um, the Royal Commission into um, Domestic Violence, yes. Family Violence, was released and that we were now preventing women and children from accessing those houses who, who would never end up being housed there. That was a lie. And then later on, um, you know, we were um, – taking drugs in the street. We were wielding machetes in the street, all kinds of just crazy stuff that we were just no good rat bag people. But that's all. They knew that we were on strong ground. They had a whole media department create documents on how on how their employees should best um, answer questions from the media on how to respond to what we were doing because we were really strong and we had them by their short and curlies, you know, so... They did everything they could to just um, discredit us, yeah. And it was very difficult, wasn't it? Because uh, it's very hard uh, to keep uh, feeding the media 
uh, strategizing. And uh, there were a whole range of things about the uh, activist group, which was that uh, you took the position that you weren't going to be a hierarchical uh, and uh, this caused some people considered that to be a weakness, but this is actually the divide between uh, the future and past paradigms of power distribution, isn't it? I mean, that's what you guys were about. Well, we had the Homeless Persons Union. I was a part of that. We were a small crew, a few people. And then um, we had um, you know, lots of other different people that were coming that were not affiliated with any other group and just individuals. They were homeless. People that were homeless. <laughs> That's right. That oh, were rocking up. Teenagers, um, stolen generation people, people that had just come straight off the street, escaping um, family violence. And we couldn't tell them and we didn't want to tell them what they should be doing. If they wanted to occupy their other houses, then who were we to stop them? And But I think broadly everybody was on board with our um, – one of our demands that we wanted them to be turned into genuine public housing, and everybody was down with that. Um, you you yeah. had about six um, demands, didn't you? Yeah, one was to turn them all into public housing. One was for the minister at the time, Martin Foley, to come down and actually speak to people that were homeless and listen to their stories. One was like transparency on all the East West Link properties because when we arrived there, Annie, we didn't know who was managing the properties. Had they been sold yet? Were they being managed by a private real estate? Which ones were being managed by the, the charity? Like that was all unclear. So that was one of our demands as well. And another one was what are you going to do with the – you know, 56,000 people that are on the public housing waiting list. What are your plans to address their housing future? Um, It's interesting because uh, uh, there was a framing of you as naughty children. You know, the, the idea that the state government did never come down and speak to you and never thought that it was appropriate was because I, uh, reading through the lines, I'd say that they saw that as being giving you credence if they came and spoke to you as real people. And it, even when you talked about the the self-organising, no leaders approach that, that was taken to the occupation, that lack of legitimacy that was offered to the occupiers happened, as we, see, we say in our research, at local government level as well. So there was meetings happening that included the police, including community organisations, council officers, about the occupation and about what to do. But nobody from the Homeless Persons Union or anybody else was invited in. And as we were told in our research, it was because there was discomfort about uh, those people kind of being in a part of discussing what was going on. And I think that's really important that we... Yeah, yeah. yeah Actually, last happen. night I went to a film called uh, Law of the Land and it was about this. In fact, it was about First Nations people up in Arnhem Land wanting treaty and it's a very important film. They actually uh, elected one of their own to go to Parliament in uh, the Northern Territory and when he got there the they decided the uh, other parliamentarians decided that they'd have a forum about treaty and he was excluded it's so reminiscent of what you're talking about 
Definitely. Takes your breath away, hey? Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, as our research revealed, yeah, the lack of a perceived clear, as you were saying, hierarchy or who's always the question is, you know, when police rock up to these events, who's your leader? <laughs> it's like, well, we're all leaders here, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's a real problem for council, like how to engage with activists that don't have, that are not like a charity, that are not like an incorporated association. Like how do we engage? Have put their suit on. Yeah, how do we engage with these people? They've got a lot of work to do in, in to skill themselves in listening to the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, the There was uh, a whole range of things that came out of it. Um, ultimately, um, you could say that, uh, oh, well, you, you benchmarks of success, you actually go through a whole range of different ways that one would – uh, benchmark success. So, for example, Kelly, you were uh, saying uh, the activists said that uh, there's self-empowerment that was involved in this. That's a mark of success, right? Uh, uh, definitely. And I think it really changed the perception of the homeless voice in the city. For the first time, people that were homeless had a really strong political voice. Um, you know, And I think it, that just changed for a lot of people because a lot of, I think, before that, People that were homeless were seen as very passive, stupid. They didn't actually have anything intelligent to say. And these were a bunch of people that really understood their situation and understood the system and could articulate it and speak to it really clearly. Um, And another great outcome, Annie, was that like a whole bunch of people that were occupying that were really vulnerable, they ended up getting public housing out of this occupation, which is tremendous they're still living in their homes today and they're living lives you know and as the report says they're still alive they're still alive you know and um that's just uh wonderful unfortunately some of the um people who who were on the street who weren't uh, able to get housing have since passed you know a couple of women from the indigenous community um, so that's just an absolute um, travesty. So things could have been really different and council really could have stood up and supported the um, uh, occupation much better. Mm. Mm. Uh, there was something else that's really important uh, uh, that was a, a changing uh, – if a legal, a legal definition that changed, like uh, when you were not just uh, fronting to the – as the report says, you weren't just fronting to the media, you're actually fronting to the uh, the law. And people did uh, pro bono work. Lots of good people put in their work to because they could see that they needed to be able to move the systems in a more positive way. Uh, and uh, there were some judgments that came out of this, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah, and I think... Um as I understand it, and I'm reading the transcripts from from the legal cases, the um, the judiciary gave a very sympathetic hearing to the voices of the occupiers who had a chance to tell their story, and were actually often quite dismissive of the position of the state government and saying, "Well, that we just need these eviction orders put through, and just it, do your job, just do your job, and and." Um, there was orders that said that human rights assessments had to take place so that people weren't being moved into homelessness out of the situation of, of, of the occupation. And I think that was That becomes a legal definition. That's um, important. 
I, I think it's important. I, I think we're still a long way, Annie, oh, from yeah. having a human right to housing. <laughs> um, but it's, it was a significant moment um, that, that those judgments were made. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that the uh, government operators can't just uh, shirk their responsibility. You know, how dare you, you dirty people, go away. They have to conduct a human rights assessment before they can just chuck anybody out of public housing. Mm. And they and uh, realise that they have blood in their hands when people pass away, as you say. Um, the uh, uh, what's you've got an event, uh, so people can, you're launching this. This is an important uh, important thing to, for people to take on board this uh, activism because what this report is really about is how can local government be more responsive and useful to activists, and how can activists. Um, learn a bit, a bit about the way the structures of local governments work so that they can be more effectively wielded. I think you've, you've, yeah, you've summed you, it up very well. You've encapsulated it well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so on a, a Tuesday at 6 o'clock at uh, University of Melbourne and the uh, Melbourne School of Design, we are having um, a launch. Um, we've got a, a panel of... Um, Great people who were who were involved in different ways at the time. Anne Barton from who was at Yarra Council at the time, uh, Pat Cipollone who was involved in the HPUV, and um, Meg Fitzgerald from the Fitzroy Legal Service um, are going to be talking with us. The and, great heroes. Yeah, and um, yeah, uh, uh, you, you can kind of watch it online as well. So if you look up the Melbourne School of Equity. Sorry, Melbourne, Melbourne um, uh, Social Equity Institute's uh, website, and there's information there uh, about the event. Um, as a Tuesday at six. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for coming in. We've come straight to the wire, and it's uh, a great pleasure to have had live guests in the studio. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with. A great song that I heard last night. to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.